Well, it is with I confess considerable anticipation that we resume our studies in the through the books of the Bible series tonight and come to the epistle of Paul to the Romans. I'm I'm sure you're already aware that this is undoubtedly the most powerful human document ever been written. It's pure gold from beginning to end. This is the book that lit the fire in Martin Luther's heart that began the Protestant Reformation and changed the history of Europe and the history of the world. This is the book that caught fire in John Wesley's heart as he was listening to a man reading Luther's prelude to the Epistle to the Romans. And and Wesley, in a little chapel in England, said his heart was strangely warmed as he heard uh, the truth of Romans set forth. And this is what uh, caused, therefore, through him, the great evangelical awakening that saved England from the fate of France and uh, arrested the decay of the of the English of English life and completely altered the history of the world again. This is the epistle that uh, uh, burned in the heart of Karl Barth, who in our own day began to uh, set forth some of the mighty truths of this letter and captured the theological world, returning it from the, from the crass, empty liberalism of the close of the 19th century and restored a great deal of uh, truth to the churches of Europe by means of this letter. And it's reached the hearts of countless thousands and millions of people who have simply read the letter to the Romans and their lives have been drastically altered. For years uh, in Montana, I was acquainted with a man with a church headed by a liberal pastor. And uh, that church was regarded as the most liberal church in the whole city of Great Falls, Montana. But the pastor on one occasion was back in Chicago and he went into the Moody Church in order to uh, just see what fundamentalists did anyhow and uh, to try to find something that he could criticize and he listened to Dr. Ironside teaching the book of Romans and his heart was captured by that message and he went up to hear doc- to talk with Dr. Ironside afterward and Dr. Ironside gave him a copy of his lectures on Romans and that man read that book on the, on the train on the way back to Montana and by the time he reached Great Falls he was a transformed man He went into his pulpit and he began to proclaim the truths of the book of Romans and the church was transformed. And uh, I have had at least, therefore, one experience of seeing a completely liberal church totally transformed into an evangelical testimony in just a space of a few years by the power of the book of Romans. Now, that ought to whet our appetite for us as we come to this great epistle. It was written to the Romans, to the Christians in the city of Rome by the Apostle Paul from the city of Corinth where he was then spending a few months on his way uh, before he went on up to Jerusalem later on carrying that uh, famous collection of money that was gathered together by the churches for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Paul had never been to Rome and uh, 
We don't know how the church in Rome got started. Perhaps it was from the Christians who were at, at Pentecost, converted on the day of Pentecost, who went back to the capital city. But here they were in Rome. And this letter is written to them by Paul because he'd heard of their faith and he wants to fulfill it to the utmost. He wants them to be soundly based in the truth. And therefore, this letter is a magnificent explanation of the total reach of, of Christianity. Uh, it, uh, it contains every Christian doctrine. It's a great panorama of the Christian faith and of the marvelous plan of God for the redemption of man. And if you had nothing but this, if you had no other book of the Bible but this, you would find every vital Christian teaching at least mentioned here. And uh, this then becomes what you might call the master key to all of the scriptures. If you really grasp the book of Romans in its total argument, you'll find yourself at home in any other part of the scripture. The others develop it and amplify it in a great way, far more than perhaps Romans does. But the key in the heart and the unity of it all focuses together into this great letter. Uh, in this introduction, which Paul gives in verse, the first 17 verses, he writes to us about Christ and about the Roman Christians and about himself. Every introduction, of course, gives you the major themes of a letter, and that's what this introduction does. The letter itself is divided into three major divisions, chapters 1 through 8, 9, 10, and 11, and then 12 through 16. And uh, these divisions uh, grow naturally out of one another. As we'll see, the first eight chapters are all about the doctrinal explanation of what God is attempting to do, what God is, is doing with man, how he redeems the total man, body, soul, and spirit. And then uh, 9, 10, and 11 is a great section illustrating this for us in the nation Israel. And then... 12 through 16 is the practical section in which all these mighty truths are applied to human situations. And therefore it covers all of life. Now if you'll remember that simple introduction or a simple outline, you'll have a key to the book of Romans. And in the first 17 verses of the first chapter, you have the introduction about these three themes. Uh, about Christ, because there's no Christianity without him. He, uh, Christianity is not a creed, it's a life. A life lived again in you. Therefore, you, you must know about Christ. And that's what the theme of the letter is, and that's what it, the note on which it begins. And then... Paul writes throughout this letter about the Roman Christians because they're just like us. In fact, this is the problem with which Christianity grapples. Human beings just like you and me. And that's what these Roman Christians were. They are the basic material with which God begins his work. And they are exactly like we are. And all that is described about them in this letter is true of us as everything that's true of us was true of them. And then Paul writes about himself in the letter because he's the pattern of what Christ will do. He's exhibit A 
a living example of God's grace. And all this is simply to make visible and clear to us what God intends to do in Christianity. Now, I think perhaps this letter is particularly demands uh, simply a summary treatment. In certain of the books of the Bible, I've tried to just gather up the main themes and the main thought of the letter so as we get the full focus of its message. But this letter is such a logical development that I think the best way we can handle it is to quickly try to trace through this argument without getting bogged down in details that you might see for yourself the devastating logic by which the apostle develops the whole theme. And when, we, when we're through, we see how, how magnificently he's captured all the mighty themes of the gospel for us. Now, my temptation, of course, is to get bogged down in some of these fascinating details. But we'll try not to. And you pray for me as we go through, will you? <laughs> that we don't. Paul begins in chapter 1 with verse uh, 17, 16 and 17, by declaring what he's going to be talking about, the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it's the power of God. Who's ashamed of the power of God? <laughs> The greatest force possible in all the universe at work in the gospel. It can change lives. It can get hold of a drifting, purposeless, lost young man who doesn't know where he's going and doesn't know what he's living for and suddenly change his life and give him purpose and drive and meaning. That's the power of God, isn't it? That's the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, doesn't make any difference. And he'll show why as we go through. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Quoting from Habakkuk, the verse that, that uh, burned itself into Martin Luther's heart. Now that's his theme. There's a righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. Now, to establish the need for that, Paul begins to look at the world around him. And in the subsequent verses to this, all through chapter 2 and through most of chapter 3, he's simply analyzing what mankind is like. And he takes the two great divisions of mankind. And there are basically only two. Someone has well said, there are only two classes of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. The classifying is always done by the righteous. <laughs> and this is true, isn't it? I remember years ago when my children were very small, stepping out into the backyard one day, and as often appears when you have small children, somebody, some of them had written with chalk on the fence. And they had drawn a line down the center of a, of a panel of the fence, and uh, on one side of it had headed it good people, and on the other side, bad people. And under the heading bad people were the list of all the neighborhood children, and under the heading good people were all the list of my children. <laughs> and it was pretty obvious that the classifying had indeed been done by the righteous. <laughs> Now, it's in some similar sense, you see, that the apostle handles mankind. And he starts with the unrighteous crowd first. 
what we would call the bad people, the, uh, the outcasts of society. And he summarizes the whole thing about both classes in one verse. And this is a, such a key verse, I call your attention to it in the first chapter, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Now that verse says an awful lot. It says, for instance, that uh, the problem with men is that they have the truth, but they won't look at it. They hold it down. They suppress it. And if you want proof for that, I suggest you just look at your own life for a while and also the lives of those around you and see if this is not true. That we, that things that we don't like, we push down into our subconscious and don't want to think about. This is why mankind is so busy in the rat race of life and never wants to be alone, never wants to stop and think and really look at things, but is, tries to busy himself in some constant whirly gig and carousel of life. Why? Well, because he doesn't want to look at himself. He suppresses the truth. And this is the problem. And because of this, Paul says, the wrath of God is continually pouring itself out upon mankind. Now, that wrath is described for us as this chapter develops. That wrath turns out to be not lightning bolts from heaven flung at wicked people who step over the traces, but rather it proves to be God saying to mankind, look, I don't want you to do certain things because they'll destroy you. But if you insist on doing them, go ahead. But you're going to have to take the consequences with them. You can't make a choice to do, uh, to live wrongly and avoid the consequences that come from that choice. And the wrath of God is simply saying, when you insist on having your own way, then you're going to have to take all that comes with it. And three times through this chapter, you see it, it repeated, the wrath of God in action. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up until it resulted in this condition. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the condition of mankind. That's those who step over the traces. That's the rebellious crowd who display their enmity against God and their suppression of the truth of God by, uh, by flagrantly, blatantly throwing over the traces, observing no standard and living as they please, what we would call the bohemians, doing as they please. And the result is a moral decay which results in a perversion of all the natural drives of life, so that even uh, the sexual drives become perverted. And men give themselves to men and women to women, as this chapter describes. And this is exactly what's taking place in society today, when man steps out in open rebelliousness. Now, that's one side 
of society. But it's not all. And in chapter 2, the apostle turns to the other side. And he now examines the good side. The good people. The so-called moral and religious people. Who are, by this time, very busy pointing the finger and and uh, and tut-tutting with their tongues at this crowd that's living in open and vile wickedness. And Paul says to them, wait a minute. You have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. And then in a most remarkable way, he shows how. He shows that these people who are saying, well, we don't do these things. We don't, we don't live like this. We don't smoke. We don't, uh, we don't carouse. We don't go in for all this sexual licentiousness. We observe the laws. We try to behave ourselves. We're still equally as guilty as these others because they were uh, fulfilling some of the other things in this list that I just read to you as much as those who were doing the more open things. They were fulfilling such things as malice and strife and deceit and malignity and gossips and slanderers. They too were inventors of evil. They too were foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. But the trouble was they were covering it over with a veil, with a... With a uh, an external appearance of being good. But inside, their hearts were as filled with malignity and envy and jealousy and strife and evil against one another as the others. And so that you, you have the picture of humanity, all the bohemians on one side, looking at these moral, respectable people and knowing something of their hearts, saying, look at the hypocrites. The crowd of hypocrites. I wouldn't touch him with a ten-foot pole. And all the moral and respectable people looking at the Bohemians and say, look at this licentious, lascivious crowd. We wouldn't have anything to do with him. But God turning the spotlight of his, of his omniscient eye upon all of humanity says, you're all equally guilty. There's no difference. Well, the Jew comes in here and says, what about me? After all, I'm a Jew and I have certain advantages before God. And Paul takes him to task and shows him that he's in exactly the same boat. That despite these advantages, he himself is filled with the same kind of basic heart enmity as the others. And so the conclusion is that all mankind stands without exception in need of a redeemer. Now that prepares the way for the gospel. And when man sees this, and the conclusion, as you know, is in that well-known sentence in verse uh, uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or as Phillips beautifully renders it, all have sinned and missed the beauty of God's plan. Well, now that lays the basis for redemption.
And there are three phases of redemption as Paul outlines it to us. These are familiar to you. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. And these occupy the next pages. In chapter 4, you have an illustration of what justification means. And he begins on this theme. In the closing part of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's showing us that justification is God giving us a righteous standing before him on the basis of the work of Christ. Another has died in our place. Another has met our need. We never could do it ourselves. We're totally incapable of pleasing God apart from this change that occurs in the heart. doesn't make any difference whether we build a moral, respectable life outwardly or kick over the traces and live like a bohemian. It doesn't make any difference. We're both guilty. Neither one is acceptable. Neither is any better than the other. Therefore, the only way righteousness can come to us is by accepting the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Now, that's justification. And justification has to do with the spirit of man. Each of us is a threefold being. We have spirit, soul, and body. And it's God's program to save the whole man. And the next chapter, uh, the next series of chapters now occupies us with how God does it. He begins with the spirit. That's always the deepest part of man. And what God does in the spirit is to implant his Holy Spirit again in the human spirit. And that gives us righteousness. A righteous standing before God. So that justification is a permanent, unchangeable thing. It's far more than forgiveness of sin. Although it includes that. It's a position before God as though we never had sinned at all. It's, this, it's Christ's righteousness imputed to us, reckoned on our account. And that has to do with the human spirit. And when this takes place, we are delivered, therefore, from any penalty for sin. Now, unfortunately, when we learn this, and we see how Paul illustrates this in chapter 4 with both Abraham and David, who were both justified on this basis, and Paul shows how it wasn't by circumcision, it wasn't by obeying the law, it wasn't by any of these things that men try to do to please God. No religious hocus pocus, no act of trying to obey a standard they could never breach would be available, would be, uh, enough in God's sight, adequate in His sight. But simply by faith, these men believed God about His Son. Abraham looked forward and saw the coming of Christ and believed God. It was justified by faith. David, even though he was guilty of the twin sins of adultery and murder, believed God and was justified so that uh, he could sing about the man to whom God would not impute iniquity. And thus these men are examples from the Old Testament of how God justified. Now, unfortunately, many Christians stop right there. That's all they think salvation is about. That it's just a way to escape hell and get to heaven. But that isn't it. There's, uh, there's more to the human heart, uh, to the human life than the spirit. There's also the soul and the body. And beginning in chapter 5, Paul sets forth for us now 
through chapters 5 and 6 and 7, the way God is working to deliver the soul. Now, the soul is what we're primarily concerned with now. The soul consists of our mind and our emotions and our will. And these in man as he's born of Adam in this human race are under the reign of sin. That is, sin, the flesh, if you want to use the biblical term for it here, rules us. The life of Adam possesses us with its self-centered characteristics. And even though our spirit has been justified, it's quite possible to go on with the soul still under the bondage and reign of sin. And so though we're, our destiny is settled in Christ, our experience is still as much under the control of, of evil as before we were Christians. And that's where you get the miserable experience of being up and down, up and down, sometimes reckoning on the promises of God for justification, and then again plunged underneath the control of the, the uh, implacable bondage of sin ruling in the life and making us act in selfishness and self-centeredness all the way through. Now, what's God's program? Well, to sum it up in one word, sanctification. God intends us to see that in Jesus Christ, this whole thing was taken care of as much as our destiny was. That we can be as free from the reign of sin as we can be from the penalty of sin. And in chapter 5, he outlines the whole thing for us. He takes these two divisions of mankind, man in Adam and man in Christ, and he sets them side by side. And he says, look, when you were a man in Adam, that is, before you became a Christian, you acted out of your life that you had inherited from Adam. You just did things naturally. And what you did naturally was wrong. It was self-centered. You didn't have to plan it. You didn't have to program it. You didn't have to ha have to get up in the morning and think about how to be bad. Did you? You didn't catch yourself making resolutions that you never would be good again. And then suddenly find you're breaking your word and there you are being good again. You didn't intend to at all. No. You just expressed what was in you, the life that was in you. Now, you had to learn it a bit, but you learned it as a baby, so young and so tenderly. And it was so widespread around you that it just came naturally. And you began to express the life of Adam. And that was the problem. Now he says, when you become a Christian, God does something to that. He cuts you off from this life in Adam. You're no longer joined to fallen Adam, but you are joined to a risen Christ. And your life is now linked with his. And therefore, he plans to express his life through you in the same natural way as Adam expressed his life through you. And what you experienced of defeat and misery and heartache and bondage and uh, uh, blindness in Adam will be exceeded much more by what you'll experience of victory and glory and blessing and peace and joy in Christ. And when you learn the process, it's just as easy to be good in Christ as it was to be bad in Adam. 
Just as natural. Just as easy. No struggle about it. But it'll take a while for you to learn uh, to really put it into practice and you'll catch on faintly at first and you'll struggle a bit with it and it'll take you quite a while to really see what he's talking about. But when you do, you'll discover that where you once, where sin once reigned over you unto death, Christ will reign over you unto life. And right now, you can experience the same victory in Christ as you once experienced defeat in Adam. Now, that's chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, he begins to show us how to do this. And here he shows us that God has done three things for us in the death of Jesus. Or, or that is, he's done one thing for us, and we need to do three things about it. He... That we not only die, he not only died for us, but we died with him. Now that's a great truth. That means that when God says that he set us free from the life of Adam and linked us to the life of Christ, he really did. Even though for quite a long time our feelings are going to tell us differently. And he wants us now to understand this, that we need to believe what he says regardless of how we feel. Because what he says is true. And if we'll believe it, despite of the fact that we feel differently, we'll soon discover that it's true. And more and more enter into the realization of this tremendous thing that we can, that we can be as good in Christ as easy as we were bad in Adam. Now, he begins then by announcing the fact. And then he says, now... You must learn to reckon on this. That is, day by day, as you come into a situation of pressure and temptation, you must, you must remind yourself that this is true and act on it even though you don't feel like it. You won't feel dead in Christ. You'll feel like you, this evil thing is very much alive. And that it has control over you. And that you have to do these things. And that you're not going to be satisfied if you don't. And you won't find what you're looking for in life. And you're missing out on what the world around you is experiencing. These are the pressures that will come upon you. But now are you going to believe the one who loved you? Are you going to reckon this to be true and act on that basis? If you do, you'll soon discover that it is true. And you'll be brought right out into liberty. Now chapter 7 is facing the fact that there are two levels of understanding, of experience on this, when we come into this matter. We, we know already, even before we became Christians, that certain aspects of our natural life, that is the Adamic life, the flesh, are bad because they get us into trouble. We know that selfishness is bad. We know that, that, uh, sexual misadventure is bad we know that stealing is bad and lying is bad and some of these things and uh, we think that we understand what the flesh is and we, we think we know what God means when he talks to us about these bad things in our life and at first this is the area in which we work we stop lying and we stop stealing and we stop doing these outwardly openly bad things but then we, we discover some strange thing is happening. 
that despite the fact that we've learned how to walk in victory over these things that we had labeled bad, we're still in bondage. We're still weak. We still don't have the power that we're looking for out of this Christian experience. We still struggle with ourselves. We find ourselves at enmity with ourselves. And we're entering into the experience that Paul describes in chapter 7, where he speaks of this inner conflict where he wrestled with himself. What's wrong? Well, you see, what we haven't learned yet is that there's what we call the good side of the flesh is just as bad as the bad side. The self-effort, the effort that we make as men to try to do something for God, and the efforts that we make to try to gain some kind of favor or pleasure or some kind of uh, advancement for ourself and glory to ourself out of the situation, out of the things we do for God, these are just as bad as the bad things. And finally, when we learn that, that there's nothing we can do for God, but, there's, but he intends to do everything through us, then we come into deliverance. And that's when we fully begin to realize the deliverance of the mind, the emotions, and the will brought under the control of Jesus Christ and fulfilling in glorious, triumphant experience all that he had in mind for us now. Well, that's the soul. But what about the body? Well, chapter 8 deals with that. Here in chapter 8, he shows us that while we're still in this life, the body remains unredeemed. But the fact that the spirit has been justified and the soul is being sanctified is a guarantee that one day God will, will redeem the body as well. And chapter 8 is the tracing of that. And the guarantee that someday, as we enter at last into the presence of Christ, we shall stand body, soul, and spirit perfect before him. And that leads to his great, tremendous word of praise at the close of chapter 8. Now in 9, 10, and 11, and I'll move a little faster now, we come to... uh, three chapters here that are that illustrate what Paul has been talking about and they answer some of the questions that are raised inevitably by the thinking mind that has traced through this great plan of redemption there's first of all the question of the sovereignty of God and chapter 9 is the great section that treats this God is a sovereign being and this answers the question of why I am part of Christ's body and not someone else. And this whole matter of the election and the predestinating power of God. And it shows us, it helps us to see this whole problem as it really is. We tend to think of ourselves as all being in a neutral condition before God. And that... uh, Uh, depending on how we live or how we act or what choices we make, we're either going to fall off on the side of of being lost or we're going to fall off on the side of being saved, one or the other. But this isn't the case. And this chapter helps us to see that the whole race is already lost. It was lost in Adam. We were born into a lost race. We lost our right to be saved in Adam when he sinned. And we have no rights before God at all. 
And therefore, it's only God's grace that reaches down and, and gets any of us. And no one has a right to complain to God if some are saved when none have any right to be saved. And thus he sets before us in a most magnificent way the sovereign power and choice of God. But in chapter 10, he links right with it the moral responsibility and freedom of man. And he shows us that it's all before us there as something we must make a choice about. And it is simply the choice of faith. That you don't have to climb up into heaven to get Christ or go down into hell, uh, into the grave to get him out of the dead. If you were going to work your way to heaven, the apostle is saying, you'd have to do that. You'd have to somehow go up to heaven and get Christ and bring him down to earth. And then after he'd been here a while and died, you'd have to get down into the grave and make him alive and bring him up by your works. How are you going to do that? Well, he says, you, you can't. And you don't have to. It's already done. Now the word of faith is near you. Believe it. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. And then in chapter 11, he shows us that even though God uh, set aside Israel temporarily because of their unbelief, still he's going to call him, them back to himself and restore them to a position in the world. And this is a picture of what God intends to do with us. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 therefore illustrate the truth of chapters 1 through 8. Just as God set Israel aside in order that grace may uh, do its work among the Gentiles, so God completely sets aside the flesh, the fallen nature, all that we are by human nature. And then only do we begin to learn what God can do through us. When we freely admit in practice that without Christ we can do nothing, then we shall learn that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And that faith is the process. That uh, it'll never be any different. No matter how long we live as Christians, we ourselves never become any better or any more able to serve Christ apart from just a simple dependence upon him. And it's always and only Christ working in us that accomplishes the Father's will. Therefore, pride is forever our greatest temptation and our cruelest enemy. And someday, even our flesh will serve God by his grace. In the day when creation is freed from its bondage to sin and the sons of God stand forth in resurrection bodies, then even that which was once rejected and cursed shall be made to fulfill the promises and demonstrate the power of God. And he illustrates all this by Israel and the fact of God's program with Israel. And that leads him to this doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And the final section, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, are all the application of this in life. And I just call attention to one or two things. First, in chapter 12, this is the way he begins. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by these mercies of God, justification, sanctification, glorification, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto him, which is your reasonable service. In other words, the most intelligent thing you can do with your life. The most reasonable, intelligent, uh, thoughtful, 
purposeful thing that you can do with your life in view of all these great facts that he's declared to you is to give yourself to God, to live for him. Nothing else will make any sense. Nothing else will work out to any value. Nothing else will fulfill you in any degree. Nothing else will make all that God has poured into you produce anything of any value at all except that. Therefore, give yourself to him. It's the most reasonable thing you can do. And when you do, you'll find yourself, your life being changed in all your relationships. First, with regard to your brethren. And that's the first part and the latter part of chapter 12. How it's going to affect your life in church. And then how it's going to affect your life in society. The latter part of 12 and, and 13. Your relationship to the government. To the governing powers. And then how it's going to affect your relationships with, uh, uh, with the race of mankind in general. All of society, you see. All this comes in here. And even your attitudes will be different. Chapter 14. Uh, your attitude toward the weak will be entirely different. Completely different than it was before you were a Christian. Your attitude toward the lost, chapter 15, will be entirely different. There'll be a burning passion to reach them for a quite different reason than you ever could have had before. And thus he closes the letter with these admonitions to them as individuals out of his own heart and greetings from many friends and others that they had, which all are tremendously instructive, but remind us that this is all given to teach us how to live life. And I'd like to close with just reading Paul's closing words. They're so wonderful. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience to the faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together. Our Father, teach us these mighty truths. Make us to give ourselves to them that we might learn them, understand them, and put them into practice. That our own lives might fulfill all the wonderful potential that is possible in the inheritance that you have for the saints and that you Lord Jesus might discover and fulfill in us all that is involved in your inheritance in us for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.